What's good, First Church? Happy beginning of Holy Week. It's Palm Sunday, and uh, this is the most significant week in the Christian calendar. It's a big deal for all of us who follow Jesus. And uh, if it's your first time or you've been here for a long time, I want to welcome you. Online, Jasper County Jail, Hebron, what's good? And Demont Wheatfield, this is our time to have a great conversation about Palm Sunday. We're in the third week of our series called Asking for a Friend. It's all about questions you're embarrassed to ask. And today I wanna talk about something that I think a lot of people sort of wonder about. It's, does Jesus get mad at me asking for a friend? And even if you're not a Christian, I think this is one of those confusing issues because it, it seems like Christians say, you know, Jesus is so kind, he's so loving, he's amazing. But then you read the Bible and you're like, he seems kind of angry sometimes, you know? I mean, what's the, what's the deal with that? Why, why does he seem so mad? And I'm excited to examine this question with you. And right off the bat, I'll tell you, there was a specific thing that very consistently made Jesus mad. And throughout what's called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the first four books of the new part of the Bible, um, those four books, which are biographies of Jesus's life written by four different people, consistently show the same thing that makes Jesus upset. We're gonna look at it today. And what we're gonna do is tell a story that'll kind of set the scene. Then we're gonna study some Bible, Matthew 21, verses seven through 22, which we'll exposit verse by verse. If you have a Bible or you'd like, you can turn there with me. I also have it up on the screens, but we are gonna go pretty deep into this passage, going verse by verse through it. So it might be helpful for you to scribble in your Bible um, some of the message. And then we're gonna reflect together. And normally I make points, but today we're reflecting together. What does that mean? Well, you'll find out when we get there. But uh, Thursday night at 6 p.m. in our Hebron campus, I'll be preaching live up there for our remembrance service. And I want to invite you to that too. That's going to be the extended cut of this message. There was too much in this message to do in this message. So we're, we're going to, to Hebron on Thursday night. Just wanted to let you know about that. But let's start with a story. Um, what makes you really frustrated? For me, one of the most frustrating things has been air travel. It is much better now, but in the post-September 11th era, it just wasn't good for me. Many of you are coming back from spring break and you know all about it. But uh, for me, flying in airports, bad experience. And when I first got married, my wife, classic white girl, was like, why don't you like flying? I mean, I just don't understand. And I was like, fly with me and you'll find out. A man of my complexion in a post-September 11th era did not have a fun experience in the airports. It has gotten a lot better. And sure, waiting in security, you know, I mean, that's, that's no fun. But for me, it wasn't just security lines. It was getting pulled aside into the special room. You know, the special room where they do a whole lot more. Like you go to third base with a stranger, which is weird. And then they're asking you questions. One of the big ones they wanted to know about me is if I made up my name. Every time, it's like, no, I know John Hill sounds like a made up name and it also doesn't match the profile, but that is my actual name. My brother's name is Enoch, that makes more sense, but my parents chose the weirdest name in the world for him and then their second son, John. So anyway, after the violations in the special room, I'd make it to my gate and very consistently, they'd find me at my gate and then ask to inspect my shoes for a third time. It's like, look, we did it in the security lane. We did it when you made me strip down and now you're doing it again at the gate. Like, what do you think is in my shoes? You know, like they're just shoes, but they take them off. Sometimes if I flew internationally, getting back into the country was the worst, specifically at Miami. Miami International Airport, if you've ever come into re-entry there, they have, you know, those like 50 gates and the ones on the far right are always the best gates, like 40 through 50. They have that like secret shorter line and they'd always send their little agent to come find me in line and they'd pull me, you know, down. I'd have to walk across all 50 gates, like following this dude. Everybody's like, oh, he's busted, you know, whatever. And I'd go and I'd sit in this room. And you sit in the room and you'd be like, oh, I get what's happening here. There ain't no black people in that room. There's no white people in that room. It's only olive skinned people. 
sitting in that room, you know, for 30 minutes and they, they have a blocker so your cell phone doesn't work. So you're just sitting there like wondering what's gonna happen. They're like, don't talk, just be quiet and sit here. And then they call your name up and they say, you can go. And it's like, okay, why, why did we do that? I don't know, it's still a mystery to me. Not only that, but Chicago airports are the actual worst. Specifically, Midway's fine. O'Hare, mm, United, United is the worst airline. I spent at one go 20 hours chasing gates around Chicago O'Hare. And it's like, your gate's over here. Now it's on the other side of the airport. And it's like, why? Why are we going over here? We go back there only to have the gate move back to the same spot. Then you get in the plane, you sit on the tarmac for two hours. Why? What are we doing? Why are you moving the gate around? And then Chicago airport workers are mean. It's like, you are not, you're not nice. You know, you show up into the drop-off lane and they have their whistles and their coats. And for me, it's just a very stressful experience. Maybe some of you guys have experienced this. They have very contradictory directions and they're very quick to scream in your face. You know, I remember I pull up to where it says United and I'm about to get out and they're screaming and blowing your whistle. Move forward. And it's like, my flight's United. United's back there. Why are you driving past it? It's like, you, you just told me to keep moving forward. That's why I was there, but you're screaming at me. Then don't get snippy with me, boy. Okay, I'm sorry. Don't apologize, okay? Keep moving. It's like, but you just told me to stop. I'm very stressed out. I definitely need a Prozac at this point. What in the world is happening? The worst part though for me at the airport, even though I'm not Dutch, is the prices. You're in there and they know they can extort you, right? United's got you. You know, you're just lucky not to get beat up and dragged off the plane. And the flight, you know it's gonna be delayed and they can charge whatever they want for food. You know, you go to McDonald's there and they're like, oh, you want a four piece ch chicken McNugget? $14, congratulations. Oh, you want water? Guess what? Our water fountains are all broken. You're welcome, says Chicago Airport Authority. $9 for a Dasani. It's like, what? You can't go anywhere. You can't bring drinks in. Oh, this actually happened to me. I flew down from Minneapolis to uh, Chicago for a day and then back up again, just one day. Like, you know, land in the morning, take off in the evening. And I spent 20 hours, that was the time I spent 20 hours there. I didn't bring my charger because I thought, I'm just going for a couple hours. It'll be fine. Well, my phone was running out of batteries and they're like, oh, you want a lightning cable? That'll be $20, American dollars. I was like, oh, I paid $20 for a Belkin lightning cable, which I still have just to get angry at. I keep it and I look at it and I'm like, you are the worst. By the time you land, a lot of times you're just angry, you're dehydrated, you're super late, you've been violated by strangers who you know are never gonna call you back. And that just hurts, you know? You've been robbed legally by the Chicago Airport Authority and Lori Lightfoot or Daly or Blagojevich or whoever's going to jail next, I don't know. The whole thing, the whole thing just makes me mad. People are on holiday to visit someone and the lines are crazy and there's cranky people and the officials take advantage of you. Recently when I've been flying, things are much better. But you know, for, for a 10 year span there, it was pretty rough. And the same thing, the same experience that I just described, which many of you can relate to, was true for Jesus once a year. He had a sort of airport experience where everyone got taken advantage of and humiliated um, in a marathon of crowds, price gouging and corruption. Once a year, the Jews were sort of required by religious custom to travel to Jerusalem from all over Israel for something called Passover week. And uh, this was actually, the, the Bible says, as was his custom, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. We know of at least three times during his ministry that he went there and he'd celebrate Passover. It'd be like a big family reunion because everybody would go, all your classmates, all your family, all your friends going to Jerusalem, all the Israelites would get together as one big happy family again, the descendants of Abraham, all the tribes there in Jerusalem once a year. 
And uh, for many, it was considered the most wonderful time of the year. It was sort of like Christmas. It was a big deal, half a million people there. And uh, this is where Palm Sunday actually comes from. It happened at the beginning of the Passover celebration. And Jesus, at this point in his ministry, this is the third time we know of that he was there. He's been getting really famous. He's performing these great miracles. He's very sensational now. In the relatively small country of Jerusalem, Jesus is the biggest deal. He's gaining a lot of influence. And the political leaders of the day who also happen to be the religious leaders, they were trying to either like glom onto his fame and connection or get rid of him. They just said, what can we do to leverage this to our own advantage? There's a great deal of tension and uncertainty at this point because Jesus has a ton, a ton of influence, more than ever. People are turning back to God. Good stuff is happening, but Jesus is doing it outside of these normal political channels. And the religious and political leaders, they don't know what to think. Is he for us? Is he against us? Jesus has been conciliatory of where he sits. The um, Sadducees were sort of like the Democrats. The Pharisees were sort of like the Republicans. There's these two very opposed, polarized political parties that are both wondering whose side is Jesus gonna be on? He shows up to Jerusalem on Passover week and everybody's wondering, you know, how's he gonna enter? Who's he gonna ally himself with? Or is he going to assert himself as his own thing? A third option was kind of unheard of. But Jesus is not subtle about his answer. The Jewish society had basically, the king would ride on something that would be our equivalent of Air Force One. Air Force One is more than a pair of shoes, dope pair of shoes, but it's actually a plane that the president flies in. Some of you are familiar with it. Usually it's, uh, this, it's called a VC-130, but it's a big 747 that the, 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 the president flies in. And for the Jews, their Air Force One was an unbroken donkey colt. You'd ride that into Jerusalem and that would signal that you are the king. And Jesus arranges it so he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on an unbroken donkey colt with all the fanfare that would go with the king riding into Jerusalem. It's a big deal. It's a big ostentatious statement. It'd be the equivalent of, you know, landing in Air Force One and then having the band play Hail to the Chief. That's what Jesus is doing. It's a big, big statement. His disciples are starting the cheering, spreading the coats. In Matthew 21, verse seven, it says, they brought the donkey and the colt to him and they threw their garments over the colt. And he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of them. Their garments were the most expensive thing they owned. Your garments would be like as expensive as a car, like a year's wages could go into buying a nice set of clothes. He sat on the colt. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession and all the people around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David. The son of David is the house of kings. They're acknowledging that Jesus is descended from the house of kings. It's a big statement. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They were using this word, Hosanna, um, which basically means it is God's will. This man is king, it is God's will. Praise God in highest heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not submitted to the religious or political leaders of that day. I'm not gonna submit to the Democrats or Republicans. And then he's saying, I am king. And the news media is going nuts. They're calling it an insurrection because it actually kind of is an insurrection. Like it's a big, it's a big deal. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been really conciliatory about who he is. If you are reading the gospels, you'll notice when the disciples say, hey, you're the son of the living God, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone. But now once for all time, he is coming out and saying, I'm not a part of this Jewish system. I am the Messiah. And this act right here is what really galvanizes the Pharisees and the Sadducees to work together to kill Jesus. I mean, this is it. They've been talking about it for a long time, but now they're like, talk is cheap. He's committed an insurrection. He's against us. We are going to kill him. This is, this is it. And Jesus goes and he makes it even more clear. 
Um, what happens in these next three sections is what's called a triplet of prophecy. There are three related signs that a prophet makes to emphasize one point. Jesus, a lot of times we don't realize that these are related, but they are. And you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. Prophets will give three signs to indicate you know, what, uh, the same point. And the first sign starts with Jesus walking into something called the Royal Stoa. Put up that picture for me, if you would, the Royal Stoa. This is a model in Jerusalem of what the temple looked like. And this is specifically um, Herod's temple. And on the left-hand side of the picture, you'll see that big, long red roof. That's called the Royal Stoa or Solomon's Colonnade. And uh, the Jewish political and religious leaders would often meet in that colonnade. It was a, it was a big deal. Um, there was a big bazaar, a market going on in there. And for scale, that colonnade is about one kilometer long, over half a mile. And the entire Temple Mount is about 35 acres, 35 football fields. This is the largest contiguous structure in the Roman Empire. Some of the stones in that temple weigh over 30 tons, as much as a big ship or a, a medium-sized ship. Like it's a big, big facility. And uh, you can take that down. Remember in airports, how they have you captive and they gouge you with prices and food and whatever. In Jerusalem at Passover, everybody would descend on this temple and they would all slaughter an animal. They would sacrifice an animal to God. Now to us, we think, oh, that means like they burn the animal up. That's not it. They are buying their Thanksgiving turkey there, their Christmas ham. And they slaughter it there, they kill it there, and then they, they cook it and then they bring it and they eat it together. That's, that's how it works, right? It sounds wasteful to us, but that's, I mean, we eat Christmas hams, we eat animals. I love meat, meat is good. Okay, I'm glad I don't live in Minnesota anymore where it's considered not okay to eat meat. I love Indiana. Jewish law required that the animal be without defect, without defect. And the priest would determine what that would mean. A lot of you guys, you're probably like, hey, I'm gonna bring food from home, right? I can save money if I bring food from home. But the priest, even if you had a perfect animal, would be like, oh, you know what? That one's without defect. You gotta buy one from us. It was sort of a racket that they had going. And uh, they also had a special currency in the temple called a temple shekel, right? A temple shekel. And you had to exchange your money for their money and they set the exchange rate. So you can kind of see where this is going here. So they gouge you on that exchange rate and then they gouge you on the price of the animal. And normally a dove, which is what poor people would buy instead of a lamb, a dove would cost maybe a dollar and the temple, they would charge four to $10, depending on the period for a dove. It was a total ripoff of poor people. And back then the wage was so low. I mean, four to $10 would be an unspeakable amount of money. And Jesus remembers his stepdad, Joseph, in Luke chapter two, verse 22 through 24, getting ripped off. We know that Joseph and Mary would buy a dove at the temple. It's all they could afford. Rich people bought a lamb. It was a nice feast. But Jesus remembers his Passover feasting with his whole extended family on a dove, on a dove. I want you to imagine like you got all your family gathered together for Thanksgiving and mom pulls the dove out of the oven. It's like, hey, everybody gets a little nibble. You know, I get the drumstick, dee, 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 dee. like that's it. That's what, that's what you get. And this would be frustrating because you probably could have afforded something better, but you're getting gouged. Jesus, just like at the airport with huge lines, cranky officials, price gouging you, Jesus remembers, remembers watching his mom and stepdad struggling, getting humiliated in this way. And this is how the political and religious leaders would line their pockets in that day. You're here trying to celebrate with your family, show love to God, and they're just taking advantage of you and it feels yucky. Jesus walks into that royal stoa, that thing that we mentioned. Right in the very next verse, in verse 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple 
and he began to drive out all of the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers. And these tables, they're big, stone, heavy tables. Do you remember? Okay, now we have these lifetime tables. Modern technology is so amazing. They're like made of plastic. They're super light. Kids today don't know what it's like moving church tables. When I was a kid, you'd lift up these like, they're basically made out of stone. They were so heavy. They dig into your fingers. They're made out of this like compacted, horrible wood. And it'd be all you could do. These are way heavier than that. These are stone tables. Jesus, like a boss, is kicking out the chairs from under people. I don't know if you ever had anyone do that to you. I definitely did in college. But anyway, um, he knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those, and notice it specifically says, selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. He's so frustrated by what the church of that day had become. You know, he remembers these guys ripping off his family, his mom and stepdad. He remembers eating a dove together when they could have afforded a larger animal, but for the price gouging of the political leaders of that day. And notice what Jesus goes after. It says specifically, it specifically notes, money changers and dove sellers. He knows where it's happening. He knows where it's going down. This is the big Christmas holiday of the year. It's supposed to be one of worshiping God, but the politicians, the religious leaders are ruining it by ripping people off. And he's cranky, he's angry. Do you think that this pleases God? No, the son of God says this, this thing that is supposed to be about worshiping God, this Passover, remembering what God did, Jesus says, it doesn't please me at all. And he rampages. He hooks it up a one kilometer long colonnade. Okay, imagine Jesus flipping chips for a kilometer. That's a lot of tables. Like he's just going like a boss. And you know, you'd think people would stop him, but no, they don't want to stop him. Everybody's like slow clapping. Finally, you know, music is rising. Like, thank God, these, somebody's finally standing up. And then he redeems it by doing what should have happened in the first place. Instead of ripping people off, he's turning the house of God into a house of prayer and praise again. Check it out, verse 14, it says, the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And the leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and they heard even the children in the temple, the children in the temple. He's getting the children, he's corrupting the children, right? The children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. Right, this is the guy. But the leaders were indignant or apoplectic apoplectic. They were beyond themselves. What is he doing? He's making the politicians look really bad. But what makes them, what makes them indignant? What makes them really angry is Jesus is coming after their source of money, their source of power. He's going for their donor base. This is how they make money, right? This is how the corrupt, these are the campaign donations. I mean, he is cutting them off at the knees. So they do what politicians do. This is unprecedented. He is threatening our democracy, our political, our system. He's ruining the country. He's a bigot, he's evil, he's whatever. All these labels. And the story ends with the most confusing and important part. The Gospel of Matthew has these flipped in order, which is, I think, common with eyewitness accounts. Um, crime scene investigators talk about this. This is a vindicator that these moments are real. In verse 18, it says, in the morning as Jesus returned to Jerusalem, he was hungry and he noticed a fig tree beside the road. He went over to see if there were any figs, but there were only leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the fig tree withered. Interesting. This is only Jesus's, or this is Jesus's only truly destructive miracle. All his other miracles, he's bringing life. He's healing, he's saving, he's encouraging. But this miracle and the rampage before it are the only time we see Jesus be truly destructive. Because Jesus is at the end of his ministry. He's patient. He's slow to anger, full of love and second chances. But here he's showing us, this is what makes me mad. 
The Bible doesn't say God doesn't get angry. It says he is slow to anger. Jesus has spent three years. He is slow to anger, but here he is mad. The tree is an analogy for people that claim to love God, but don't actually love God. They have nice leaves. They look nice. They do all the right things, but they don't actually bear fruit. And Jesus, to those people, he says, may you never bear fruit again. What he just did at the temple is connected to this right here. It's a triplet of prophecy. He's reinforcing it. He's saying hypocrisy, fake Christians, churches and Christians that don't actually reach people. Just study the Bible, sing songs and gain knowledge. They have nice leaves, but they don't actually reach people. That's what makes me mad. This fig tree is the second sign in the triplet. The third sign is one that everybody misses. This is incredibly misinterpreted. This passage is super misinterpreted, but it all goes together, okay? So he withers the fig tree and then immediately afterwards, in verse 21, it says, then Jesus told him, may you never bear fruit again, withered immediately. Then Jesus told them, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and don't doubt, you can do like things like this and much more. He's talking about the power of anger. Dissension is a powerful thing. We should wield it carefully. You can destroy great things with your anger. Okay. He says, uh, you can do great things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, and this mountain is highlighted. That's the key to the whole passage. Very critical. May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. You can pray for anything. And if you have faith, you will receive it. Christians misinterpret this passage all the time. If you want to understand this correctly, you need to know what this mountain is. This is not a passage, not a passage about faith and prayer. Christians are like, if I ask God for anything, I can get it. No, this is a passage about the anger of God. We know that he's probably standing in the valley before what's called the Temple Mount. Why do they call it the Temple Mount? This is not complicated. It's it's, It's because it's on a mountain. You know what I mean? Like pretty easy right there. This mountain is referring to the temple. It is the most sacred, special thing in all of Jewish society. And he is talking about throwing it into the sea. This is the center of Jewish life and culture. It is the Jewish religion. And he's talking about bringing down the whole system because he thinks it is corrupt. All three of these passages go together. This passage is not about faith or prayer. It's about Jesus saying he's so mad at the state of faith of the religion of the people of Jerusalem. He's gonna wither them like a fig tree. He's gonna throw their temple into the sea. He's gonna flip over this den of thieves and their tables. It's a prophetic triplet. Super common in the Bible, reinforcing the same point. Just three chapters later, Jesus would say that the temple is gonna be totally destroyed. He says, no stone on this temple mount would be left on top of one another. And 40 years later, that exact thing would happen. The Roman legions would come and in a fierce battle, the temple would be destroyed. And the Roman generals would say, leave no stone on top of one another on this temple mount because the fire raged so severely that the gold in the temple melted into the cracks. He said, I want you to tear this apart stone by stone, get all of the gold. Palm Sunday is a story about Jesus getting super angry. He's been slow to anger, quick to forgive life-giving and kind, but he has become a lion at this point. And he makes it clear, I'm not here to fix a system. I'm here to start a new movement, a new covenant. What makes Jesus mad? It's not what you think. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He hangs out with sinners, adulterers, drunkards, and criminals. I think today Jesus would hang out with all kinds of people, lesbian, gay, angry, prostitutes. He loved them, he befriended them, and then he called them to repentance. Right? That's what Jesus does. Go and sin no more. I want to call you to a transformed life. He was a man who really believed no one's perfect and everyone's welcome. 
He's a God of transformation. What made him mad was specific and it was two things. Number one, it was churches and religious organizations that are corrupt and selfish and not reaching people. They have beautiful leaves, but no fruit. And then people as individuals who claimed to follow God, but were hypocrites and didn't follow God and produced no fruit. That's what made him mad. The rest of church history, the rest of church history would be shaped by this day. When the disciples look back on their time with Jesus, I mean, you think about all the miracles that Jesus did. This is one of the most imprinted moments in their memories, without a doubt. This was almost traumatizing for them to hear Jesus say, this mountain thrown into the sea. It was crazy. When James, the half-brother of Jesus, was debating about Jewish traditions in Acts chapter 15, about whether or not Christians needed to keep them and follow Jewish law. He remembered Jesus clearing the temple. He remembered the fig tree. And he remembered Jesus talking about throwing this mountain into the sea. I think James, the half-brother of Jesus, also remembered the context. Jesus is a kid watching their parents struggle out of their poverty, getting gouged by money exchangers. He remembered the whole system. And he said in Acts 15, 19, and so it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles, for people new to God, for unchurched people who are turning to God. He said, church will be a place where no one's perfect and everyone's welcome. It's a place where people with sin and with struggles can find redemption and hope through repentance and forgiveness. It's a place where newly free people can find second chances and praise God and new life. And to me as a Christian, Palm Sunday is a very convicting story. It's a story that should really make us examine our lives together. It's a story about the anger and wrath of Jesus stirred up against churches who forget what God calls us to be and do, who forget that God calls us to make disciples and who forget that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Church is not knowledge or ritual or religion. Church is about a relationship with God. It is about heart transformation that produces fruit in life. The image that I think about on Palm Sunday, when I see the kids walking through the auditorium, when I see my kids waving palm branches, so I think about a beautiful tree full of leaves, but no fruit. And I think about my Lord and Savior cursing it, saying, may you never bear fruit again. Why do we want four more campuses as a church? Why do we want to bear fruit? I mean, don't we have enough? Don't you think, oh man, I mean, the church is growing I and mean, you can barely care for all of it and whatever and how do you possibly and whatever. And why did the disciples keep planting churches? Why did they start more campuses? Why are they reaching out? The reason is this story. They remember Jesus's command, go and make disciples of all the nations. That's a great command. But they didn't just remember that story on its own. They remembered it in the context of their final week with Jesus, where he looks at the fig tree and says, may you never bear fruit again. Where he flipped chips in the temple and said, this is a den of thieves. They remembered all of it. And the big question I asked myself on Palm Sunday if you're a Christian, even if you're not a Christian, I think there's a good question to ask is, what kind of fruit is the tree of my faith producing? I mean, if you're not a Christian, what kind of fruit is my life producing? I think that's a good question to ask. What do people get from me? What is the legacy? What is the fruit that I produce? With my efforts, with my labors, with the things I walk around and do in life, I think so often we just go about life. We, we're just consuming, we're just taking, we're eating, we're, what do I get, what do I get? But that's a good question to ask. I think so many people get to the end of their life and at 80 years old, start thinking about that question for the first time and they end up wasting their life. 
And if you're not dead, God's not done with you. You still got time. I think we should be asking this question. What kind of fruit is the tree of my faith producing? Is my faith just going through the motions? Some fruitless ritual where I show up and mill through the crowds with a resentful heart? What did Jesus do to that tree? Is our church a place where people actually praise God and encounter him? Where life change and transformation and healing happens. Where people who are hungry and lonely and tired and thirsty can take the yoke of Christ upon them and find hope and meaning and purpose. That's what I want this house to be. Where people praise God and pray to God. If Jesus came to the fig tree in my heart, what would he say to it after inspecting it? What would he say to you? If he looked at your life in your heart, Years ago, I came back from a camp. I was 15 years old. I had just chosen to follow Jesus. And I had several friends I wanted to reach for Christ. Dustin Lametti, Andrew Rye, Luke Hanahan. I still remember their names. And I tried to bring them to church, you know, sleepovers on Saturday, like come to church, you know, experience this with me. And I remember they hated it. They said, it's long, it's boring, it's confusing. I couldn't understand anything that was said. Why were there six rhythm guitars on the stage? They said the music sounded weird. They just felt uncomfortable. And I thought to myself, someday, I wanna be a part of a church where we could reach them. I wanna live a life that could reach them. But it wasn't just my church. I mean, I had a fine church on a lot of, I mean, it was, it was, there, it was a life-giving church on some levels, but we struggled with fruit for sure. But it wasn't just my church, it was me, it was me. I mean, if one of my friends told me, John, I wanna follow Jesus, how do I do it? I had no idea what to do. I didn't know. And I'll tell you this, when my life is not bearing fruit, I believe that the presence of God is diminished. I'm missing out on the delight of God in my life. This church, First Church, for many years has struggled with fruit. And you know what? We were withering like that fig tree. We shrank from 700 down to on many Sundays years ago, less than 200. Today, as we bear fruit, we are alive again. We feel the presence of God. Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is a Sunday where we remember what makes God man. Christians with no fruit. People wasting the grace of God in our life. That's the answer to the question. And Palm Sunday, at the beginning of Holy Week, is a day where the church reflects on what we're doing, where Christians ought to examine our hearts. Are we a place where people find healing and second chances, or are we a place where people leave and they are no different than when they came in? I want us to be a rich fountain of life in our personal lives and also at our churches, where people come to be transformed by the grace and power of God. As we begin Holy Week, the most holy and sacred part of our calendar, I'm praying for our churches. I want us to examine our hearts. I want us to examine our lives. I want us to examine our church. This week, I've got three questions that I want you to reflect on, three questions. And the first one, even if you're not a Christian, this is such a good question. We've already gone over it, but what kind of fruit is our life producing spiritually, emotionally, and relationally? And regardless of where you're at in faith, this is such a good question to ask. Don't waste your life not thinking about this. What kind of fruit is your life producing? When people interact with you, what is the story people are telling about you? What are they experiencing from you? I want you to be a life giver. Question number two, what would Jesus say to the fig tree of our family and church and person? What would Jesus say to your life? And number three, what can we do this week to live a life that Jesus would, would delight in, would find fruit in? If your tree is not one that Jesus would find fruit in, I just, I wanna call you to come to him and repent. Obviously we know that 
the religion of atheism, of godlessness, of, of, of not following any faith is, is silly. Something doesn't come from nothing. Intelligent design doesn't come from no intelligence. We know that God is real. And today, I know this message probably convicted a lot of us. Come to Jesus and repent. He is slow to anger, quick to forgive. A God of mercy and compassion. Ask him to forgive you and change you. Years ago, I've shared this story. My wife, she woke me up one night. She'd been following Jesus for about two years and she pokes me in the back, you know, as, as your wife will do from time to time. I was like asleep. I was like super excited that I got to talk to her at that point. And uh, she said, John, I don't have a burden for people far from God. I don't have it like, you know, our pastor at the time talked about a message much like this one, you know, and he, he, I, she said, I don't have a burden for lost people. We just started praying. We repented together as a couple and we started praying, God, would you give us a burden for people far from God? You know, that began one of the richest, sweetest, most challenging, stretching, growing times of our marriage and life together as God really did give us new hearts. What if you guys started praying that prayer? God, would you give me a burden for the people that you love? This Holy Week, how can I bear fruit for your kingdom? This is Easter week. It's the best, best week of church all year. My message next Sunday is gonna be the simplest, clearest presentation of the message of Jesus I know how to give. And for people, if, if you know God and, and you love God, it's gonna be a super refreshing message. I promise it'll be good, it'll be clear. For people who've never known God, perfect week to come and understand much more clearly, answer deep questions we've always had. It's gonna be an awesome weekend. I wanna challenge you to bring somebody. I'm praying that God is placing names on your heart, someone close to you, but far from God. Grab an invite card on the way out. The ushers are gonna give that to you. But this week at the start of Holy Week, I want us to pray about how the tree of our life can produce fruit that Jesus would delight in. As we close, I wanna ask you to stand to your feet at Hebron online at the jail and here in DeMott Weefield. Let's pray. God in heaven, we just thank you for the evidence that you give to us that makes believing possible and real. God, I thank you for the hope and purpose that your gospel brings to us. God, this week, would you just give us a clear vision for the fruit that you wanna produce in and through us? Would you lay names on our heart? Would you give us a vision for what you want us to do? Would you give us a passion and a burden for your gospel purposes in our lives. As we reflect on your word this week together, Lord, convict us. Give us discipline to act. God, I ask that you would do a great work in our lives. And I ask that many people who've been struggling with experiencing your presence would begin to experience it again or for the first time because we are living out your great purpose in our life. I ask that you bless this holy week you bless our Easter celebrations on Sunday and Saturday night. In your name we pray. All God's people said, amen and amen. Let's sing this last song together.